Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together, we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. Hi, and welcome to the third part of a three-part special edition of the Compliance Beat podcast, where we're talking about the Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs document that came out of the fraud section at the U.S. Department of Justice just a few weeks ago. We've been talking, walking through the different parts of the document, and I'm going to continue on today and finish, finally, going to finish today, talking about the last few sections. If you haven't already subscribed to Compliance Beat, please do so at our website or on iTunes. Uh, please give us a review if you have the time to do so. We sure appreciate it. And also check us out at moreheadconsulting.com. We have some re- other additional resources there that you may want to check out. The next part, Incentives and Disciplinary Measures, looks into an area that I think is also kind of commonly, I wouldn't say overlooked, but less well-developed. The first section, which talks about accountability and discipline and how a company resolves and responds to misconduct, it relates to the things we were just talking about. Were managers held accountable is a question. Did the company's response and consider disciplinary actions for supervisors? So they're really looking at what the company did to discipline in a systematic way for the failure or misconduct. And they're focusing, really, really focusing on data and risk evaluation here because they ask, what is the company's record, e.g. number and type of disciplinary actions on employee discipline relating to the types of conduct at issue. So what's the history here? What are the trends? So you need to be able to show when there's been a failure or some misconduct or an investigation that has led to a disciplinary action. How does that relate? What's the history behind that? Are there trends around that particular type of misconduct? Did you catch that? And how did you react to that? And how did the systems both on the front end and the back end change based on that? And you're going to want to be able to show the disciplinary results. Going back earlier to the transparency issue that we talked about, being able to communicate about this. So you need to be able to show consistency, show that you have a disciplinary system that is is consistent. You need to be able to communicate about it, and you need to be able to show the data. The second bullet under this section is what's titled Human Resource Process. And it's one simple question. Who participated in making disciplinary decisions for this type of misconduct at issue? So again, going back to the first point, what's the system? What do you have in place? How consistent is it? How is it communicated? Not just the results, but how is the disciplinary process communicated? If in your code of conduct or in a standalone policy, you don't describe what the investigation and disciplinary process is for compliance issues, then you're missing a, not missing a great opportunity, but also you're not documenting a process that needs to be documented. The third bullet I've already mentioned, consistency. How consistent is the application of a disciplinary result across the board. If you have a similar issue or the same issue that keeps coming up, are all parties treated equally? Is there consistency in the disciplinary action? And interestingly, they also include incentives when they're talking about consistency. Are incentives consistently applied across the organization? And that leads to our last bullet, the incentive system. The opening salvo here is, how has the company incentivized compliance and ethical behavior? What do you have in place? What is your incentive program? 
And secondly, have you considered potential negative compliance implications of incentives? And they say, and rewards. I think what they're contemplating here is I know that some organizations, although a minority of organizations, particularly around whistleblowers, have included a, a bounty or a reward program for people coming forward and making reports or claims. I think most organizations have not gone that way, and there are good reasons not to do that. And I think I discussed that in the whistleblower podcast. If I don't, I might have a separate podcast out in the future. But I think there are good reasons why you want to avoid those sort of incentives. But you need to have incentives. It's in the sentencing guideline standards, and now it's in this guidance. So what program do you have? Can you explain your program? Is it systematic? And can you show specific examples of actions taken, e.g. promotions or awards denied as a result of compliance and ethics considerations? Do you consider ethics in promotion? Do you consider ethics in whether a manager gets an incentive, whether managers' goals include compliance and ethics considerations? We've talked in the past about how that's Probably the best, easiest way to start to integrate incentives into your program is to have some objective criteria for managers that make sure that the manager has some skin in the game. The ninth section is continuous improvement, periodic testing, and review. So this is our monitoring and auditing portion. And the first bullet under this section, or the first checkbox, it's not a checkbox, is internal audit. And no surprise here, internal audit, I think, has been getting more focus over the last few years and and should be. Because again, if we're having a risk-based program, if we're using data to drive our programs, then our best friend is internal audit. The questions here are pretty straightforward. What types of audits would have identified issues relevant to the misconduct and did they occur? What types of audit findings and remediation progress has been reported to the management. So you've done these audits. The question is, did you implement changes that were suggested? And if not, why not? And did you report it to the board and management of the organization? And what was the follow-up? This is really important. What happened after the audit concluded? It perhaps had suggestions. You either took those suggestions, modified those suggestions, or did not take those suggestions. What was the follow-up there? And then lastly, how often has internal audit conducted assessments in high-risk areas. Internal audit may not be looking at everything each year, but the audit plan of the internal audit function of your organization, particularly if you have a mature internal audit function, should be looking at pieces, I would say, at least on an annual basis in their plan. If not, I think you need to have some reasonable explanation as to why that's not occurring. The second bullet is control testing. Has the company reviewed and audited its compliance program in areas relating to misconduct, including testing of relevant controls, collection and analysis of compliance data, and interviews of employees and third parties? So are you doing a risk assessment? Are you doing a program assessment on a regular basis? Are you looking at the program, as the sentencing guidelines suggest, on a periodic basis? What is a periodic basis? Well, that obviously varies from organization to organization, but are you doing it on a regular basis? Do you have a plan in place as to how frequently you're going to do that sort of compliance review? And if you don't, what's your justification for that? The follow-up there also is how do you do it? How are results reported and and the actions, the follow-up actions on those recommendations tracked? And what testing do you undertake? I think that's all part and parcel of a periodic review 
And this is separate and apart from internal audit. I think this is an important distinction. I think uh, sometimes these two areas get blurred. But this is a separate thing. This is looking at your process. This is not looking at an individual piece uh, or compliance risk that internal audit might look at. This is looking at your program, your resources, from code of conduct to monitoring and auditing to training and communication, all seven hallmarks of the program. And then the last bullet, I think, reinforces what I've already said a couple of times here in the last couple of minutes is how often do you do it and do you have a plan for doing it? It's called involving updates. And it asks how often have you done risk assessments, reviewed policies, procedures, and practices? What steps have you taken to determine whether those policies, procedures, and practices make sense moving forward? So do you have a plan? This is the periodic piece. How often are you going to re-examine your compliance program review? Do you go to an outside party, for example? And if you do, uh, what's that process? And how do you maintain consistency? These are all things that you need to consider and you need to be able to you know, show, document, document the fact that you have a plan in place. Now, the last two pieces of this guidance, uh, third-party management and mergers and acquisitions. A lot of this comes directly out of the guidance for FCPA that came out a couple of years ago. And on first blush, I think some might say, oh, well, this is stuff that really pertains to organizations that have have that risk, have an anti-corruption risk. And that isn't really us. You know, we're making widgets in Missouri. So we don't really have that sort of risk. I don't think that's true. I, although, again, the, the citations, the sources for this information in this document are the FCPA guide. It's important to note that this document, this evaluation of corporate compliance programs, is not just for anti-corruption issues. It's for any compliance issue. And these two issues are important for everyone. And it's important because you have third-party risk, even if you don't have a single anti-corruption risk, And that's in this highly connected world with a lot of sourcing coming from international areas. That's hard to even imagine. But just let's say, let's take it as read that you don't have anti-corruption risk. You still have third-party management and third-party compliance risk. And so you need to take this into account. So under third-party management, the first bullet is risk-based and integrated processes. What they're asking here is, have you looked into your third-party risk? And after you've identified it, how have you integrated processes into things like procurement and vendor management to address those issues? I would expand it out even broader than that. Although they specifically talk about procurement and vendor management, it can be a lot of other potential third-party risk out there as well. But the key thing is here, here is, have you evaluated it determine what kind of third-party risk you have and have you integrated into your processes. And they, again, particularly point out procurement and vendor management. And that's, again, not just for anti-corruption, but broadly speaking. The second bullet here, appropriate controls, is really due diligence. It asks some very basic due diligence questions that you would ask whenever you bring on a third party. Why are you bringing on third party? What's the business rationale? And How are you reviewing and including contractual terms that assure compliance with your responsibilities by that third party? The third bullet, management of relationships, is ongoing monitoring. So we do due diligence on the front end when we select these parties and make sure that uh, we vet them properly, but that's not the end. How do you manage those relationships with those third parties and the risk associated with them moving forward? What kind of systems do you have in place? 
How have you trained those responsible for those relationships with third parties to monitor and manage those relationships moving forward? And they talk about some incentives here. How has the company incentivized compliance amongst those third parties? What have you done to encourage the third parties you do business with to comply with compliance standards? And then lastly, something that is titled very directly, real actions and consequences. What do you do when there's an issue? When you notice either in due diligence or in the ongoing monitoring process that a third party has uh, potentially engaged in misconduct. How do you handle it? How do you investigate it? How do you resolve an issue once you've determined that it is actual misconduct? Do you terminate the relationship? If not, why not? How do you handle those situations? Another one here that is not specifically mentioned, I mean, that is mentioned as auditing, but if you have audit rights in your contractual relationship, this is a biggie that I talk to organizations about a a lot. If you have audit rights and you've never invoked your audit rights with an organization, you need to be prepared to explain why. The last section, again, I think traditionally when you would look at a list like this and you saw that it came from the FCPA guidance, you'd say, well, this is about anti-corruption, but it's not. And that's mergers and acquisitions and how an organization handles mergers and acquisition conduct. The first is the due diligence process up front. How during the due diligence process Do those responsible for the deal investigate issues of compliance misconduct? What's their process? How deeply do they investigate? And who conducts that review? You need to be able to defend during that process that you were keeping compliance issues, misconduct issues, top of mind in the acquisition process. How hard do you push to get information from an acquisition target around these issues? That can sometimes be a very touchy subject. And those involved in the deal sometimes don't want to ask those questions and don't want to push. But the downside is that if you can't justify your behavior prior to the merger, then on the back end, you're going to have a lot of consequences. The second bullet is, how is compliance integrated into the function? And this really supports the first, I think. If you have a philosophy in your mergers and acquisition process that compliance has a seat at the table, then you're more likely to be able to discover those issues up front. Because presumably, the person responsible for compliance would say, hey, this is a black box here, and we really need to know more about this before we pull the trigger. So compliance needs to have a seat at the table. There needs to be some thought about how the organizations are going to merge not just their business operations, but their legal and compliance operations as well. And they need to be involved in the process. And then the third and last bullet is how do you follow up? What's the process for connecting the due diligence to implementation? That's the actual phrase. So during the due diligence process, during the acquisition process, you discovered either some misconduct or some some issues, some controls that were lacking. What's the follow-up? What's the process? What's the plan? How are you going to move forward? You need to be able to show that you had a plan to do that. So that's it. And that was really uh, a run through, I recognize. This is about twice as long as the first part. I tried to break it in half, but I think I failed. <laughs> but I, I do plan to come back and take some more time to parse this out in the future. But I did want to kind of give some initial thoughts. Again, as I mentioned in the very first uh, part of this, none of, none of this is brand new, but it's interesting what they've pulled out, isn't it? It's very different than what I think many of us would have expected. It's very data-driven. It's very, very data-driven. It's very risk-oriented. And that 
dovetails, though, with what we've heard from them for the last few years about how they want to focus on risk and how they want to focus on on having information back up the choices you make in your compliance program. This is a sea change, folks. It's been happening. We've been monitoring it. We've been seeing it over the last few years, but they expect us to continue to evolve and be more data-driven, be more cognizant of risk as we move forward as a profession. Well, thanks for joining us for this third and final special edition of Compliance Beat on the new Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs Guidance, or the checklist that's not a checklist. took me an extra part to get it done, but I got it done. Yay. Again, check us out at uh, compliancebeat.com. Subscribe if you haven't already. Give us a review on iTunes if you haven't already. And go to moreheadconsulting.com for further resources. We're going to, we've redesigned our webpage there and we're going to be putting more resources up on the page as we move along. Thanks and until next time. Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moorheadconsulting.com.